I'm here with a buyer who's visiting us in Bristol at the moment, and I'm very delighted that he's agreed to be interviewed on the occasion of his 80th birthday, which was just a few days ago on the 1st of October. I wanted to ask you, first of all, when you look back at the landscape of your life, which things most stand out from this point of view now that you're 80? One thing that stands out is uh, sitting on my eldest brother's knee. He was 10 years older than me and we were not very close. He died last year. Mm. And he was very interested in literature. And he sat me on his knee in the front room. We used to call it the parlour. And he read to me uh, Henry V's speech before the Battle of Agincourt. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. I'm on this, you know, etc., etc. And it really had a, quite a deep impression on me. And that was my first real taste of uh, literature, of the imaginal, really, I suppose, in a way. And he spoke about other poets too. And he had this very great ability of communicating his own enthusiasm, I think. So that was a very important uh, thing for me. And it survived lots of uh, other things like being terrible at maths and, <laughs> and the same brother really pummeling me and, you know, treating me badly. But he died earlier this year and I'm so grateful to him for, uh, for communicating that to me. It sort of, uh, it lit something up. Mm. So how old would you have been then? I suppose I'd been about eight or nine, possibly ten. They're very young. Yeah. Any other things that stand out? One turning point is uh, at the age of 19, leaving the Roman Catholic Cemetery. Cemetery. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the Roman Catholic Seminary <laughs> that I'd been ah. imprisoned in for uh, nine years. Well, from the age of 11 to the age of 19. Goodness me. But that is a bit over the top. There's a very real sense of that, but there's also, uh, I got quite a good classical education at that place, and I'm grateful to one or two teachers. But on the whole, the image of imprisonment is, is quite strong. And I remember to this day, one June morning, walking down the long pathway, edged by rhododendrons and the big gates at the bottom, and walking out those gates to catch a bus home. Freedom. Gosh. Yeah. So that was the end of your formal education there, was it? That was the end of my formal education there, but I went on then to another school and to university, etc. Yeah. Mm. So that was a, quite a, an important turning point. And then uh, the next really important turning point was about 10 years later, and I was teaching English at a boys' grammar school in Greater London and uh, really fed up with it really bored with it and a friend of mine was teaching English as a foreign language in Finland I thought it sounded such a happy life for him why don't I do that so eventually I got a job at Chulalongkorn University in Bangkok working for the British Council from 1965 to 1967 that was a very important step for all reasons which I didn't realize at the time what sort of reasons? Well, 
towards the end of my stay in 1967, I was married in Bangkok, by the way, and my wife's father died and she went back home and I stayed behind to complete my contract. And during the last three months, I experienced a great sense of liberation, not, not from my wife, although I suppose to an extent that was a, I felt that, but uh, through smoking dope. Yeah. And uh, smoking marijuana actually lifted the lid off for me. I'm always grateful for the friend of mine who introduced me to it. I did uh, subsequently become, I suppose, slightly uh, psychologically dependent. And it was the law of diminishing returns. Mm. But nevertheless, that first impact was quite important. And it was while we were stoned one night that this friend of mine read out to me a Dharmic text. And it was uh, from the Tibetan book of the Great Liberation by Evans Vence. And uh, that had a very powerful effect on me. I was sceptical about it consciously at the time and argued against him. But uh, a few days later, I found myself in the bookshop buying the book. And uh, that was my first encounter with the Dharma in uh, sort of February 1967. So an encounter with the Dharma in an altered state of consciousness. Yes, but it was definitely a real experience. Mm. It wasn't, you know, a fabricated... Well, it was fabricated in the sense that I'd taken the drug, but the mm. effect of the drug was to release all sorts of inhibitions mm. that enabled me to see what I hadn't seen before. An opening of the doors of perception, perhaps. Yes, mm. cleansing of the doors of perception, definitely. Mm. So that led to, very shortly afterwards, a few months, to the next big turning point, which was encountering Sangharakshita in Hazelmere, August 1967, at his very first, the very first retreat which the Friends of the Western Sangha had, and he was leading it, of course. So it was uh, even before we were called the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order? It was called Friends of the Western Sangha. Yeah. And I went there with my wife. And Stephen Parr was there. Bhante introduced us to a practice called the mindfulness of breathing, which, again, like the drug, blew my head off. <laughs> yeah. I experienced a higher state of consciousness almost, you know, within the first practice, mm -hmm. in the sense of uh, not to exaggerate it, but to get really, really concentrated and one-pointed in a very short period of time. And I remember Bhante saying... I don't think it was on that retreat, it was a subsequent retreat. He said, this, this practice can lead you a very long way along the path. Always stuck in my mind that. Mm -hmm. And it's always been a favourite practice of mine, mm -hmm. the mindfulness of breathing. Although very shortly afterwards, I lost the beginner's mind, you know, and it became rather uphill. But nevertheless, it was, it was quite an important turning point, quite an enlightening moment in the lesser sense, you know. Yeah, so your first contact with Bante. And the first contact with Bante, which I could say a lot about, and I've written about in different places, actually. So, And I seem to have talked a lot about it just <laughs> recently. And as you travel along that landscape, sort of looking back at your life, are there things that stand out? Well, of course, all sorts of breakthroughs, turning points, interesting experiences... Tremendous difficulties, conflicts. It's been, in, in a sense, a very mixed bag. 
but uh, overall, if you, if one could describe it as a line of development, you know, with like ups and downs, mm. like a graph, it's actually steadily going up, very steadily. Then maybe it goes down a bit, but on the whole, it's for me, it's a shallow incline with sudden steep bits. And mm. uh, as I said to you recently, the spiritual path has not been easy for me. Dante once said, some people find it hard in the beginning, some people find it uneasy at the end, and vice versa. I certainly have found it difficult at the beginning and, and in the middle. Mm. But as time's gone on, not easier, but more and more fulfilling. So that old age, the last 10 years especially, 12 years, has been the most fulfilling and happy period of my life. That's very good to hear. Yeah. So I read that book by um, Hillman about old age, Force of Character, mm. where he talks about old age being a really important period in itself and creative period in itself. And not like, okay, now we're 70, so we start grinding down towards death, you know, <laughs> which a lot of people probably do. So I've experienced that, the, uh, the opportunity presented during old age mm. to fulfill oneself, to be creative, to enjoy life more. And you've been doing a lot of painting in that period, have yes. you not? Mm. Yes. Well, that's one thing that happened. I went on a, a three-month solitary retreat in New Zealand 10 years ago, and that was a, another big turning point for me because I had no intention beforehand to start painting or I call it wood carving, but it was only whittling, really. But I spent a lot of time on, in that three months doing that and drawing. And that started something which is still going on now. And had you been drawing before that? No. I had read that book, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, by mm. Betty Edwards. Mm. And I'd done a bit of that with my friend uh, Vajrananda, who is a very good artist. But that was only sort of two or three weeks, and I'd sort of dropped it. So suddenly at 70, you find yourself starting to draw. Yeah. So I, when I talk about that experience or write about it, I talk about it as the path of discovery, the path of self-discovery. So uh, it's the three myths that Sabuti talks about or gave a talk on. Self-development, self-discovery and self-surrender. So uh, for me, that three-month period was a very strong experience of self-discovery. And uh, now, well, I'm, that's still going on, but I'm also interested in uh, self-surrender very much. And uh, while I was at uh, Birmingham, there was this course, Dharmaduta course, mm. and I did a bit of input on that, but I did a seminar, part of a seminar on the Pure Land. And uh, yes, obviously, self-surrender in the sense of other power is uh, quite a strong thing for me. Has that always been there in your awareness of... of well, I suppose of one of the things about Catholicism is, I mean, uh, there's a lot about it, of course, I didn't like and I, I threw it all up. But there is that sense of higher power. Mm. You may not believe in God, but the idea of a higher power, something greater than oneself, that one surrenders to, even though you don't understand it. I was reading the programme for 2016, Adistana, mm. and Bhante talks again about or there's that quote where he says, there's something about the movement which is greater than you, greater than me, 
something about me even that you don't understand that is greater than me, which you have to actually, because you can never know it completely, you have to surrender to it. How would you describe your experience of that? Is that something you'd say you'd been aware of all through your life, all through your spiritual life, or something that's got clearer as time's gone on? It's got clearer in different ways. don't know whether this makes sense, but I'll try it out. (laughs) I got, yes, that text I mentioned, the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation, has been criticised as a very bad translation, very inaccurate Mm. translation. I can see that. And then uh, someone translated it in the 1980s, John Murdin Reynolds. He calls it self-liberation through seeing with naked awareness. So I really, that text really appeals to me. So I went around places, Padmaloka, all sorts of, in New Zealand too. At the end of that solitary retreat, I did seminar on that text. But one aspect of the text is self-liberation through seeing with naked self-liberation. So a kernel of the text is to allow the troubling thoughts or whatever to self-liberate. The text makes it sound very easy. So it does need critiquing the text and explaining that there is a sense in which you were asking me earlier about uh, direct pointing. And I think a very important aspect of that is self-liberation, meaning liberating, letting go of, letting go of these things, sorry, that's put it vaguely, <laughs> that hold you back. It follows the three Lakshanas. So mm-hmm. with my mentor, we came to Dukkha. There was quite a bit of that, although she didn't talk in those terms. I was relating it to that. You were relating it to self-liberation? Self-liberation. And recently reading that book, which is very popular in the order, by Rob Berbia. Seeing that frees. Seeing that frees. There is a lot of that, really. A lot of letting go of the fact... He uses the word fabrication. You know, I mean, it's not easy and it takes a lot of practice, but that aspect ties in with self-liberation through seeing with naked awareness. And it goes back to the Tibetan book of the Great Liberation, which had such a powerful effect. So it's all sort of, as you look at the landscape... From 80 back to 29, it all begins to, as you told me, link up in a a sort of way. Yeah, Yeah. fantastic. So would you say, as you're describing that relationship between your obviously strong heart response to that text, the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation, so it's the same text that we also know as self-liberation through seeing with naked awareness, and you were saying that it needs a bit of unpacking or a bit of explaining so that the work that you've done in the direct pointing is like some of the the kind of micro steps within there's a sort of overarching process that that text describes of self-liberation and then the direct pointing being like nuts and bolts yeah i'm not saying the whole of the uh, direct pointing is related to that it's just certain little aspects that you know i was encouraged to let go of Right. My personal obsessions. And actually, it is easier than one thinks to do that. Like the importance of, for instance, of forgiveness. Keeps coming back to, you know, what my elder brother said to me when I was, you know, 10. (laughs) 
you know, and you're, you, you sort of obsess about these things. You're talking about remembering, remembering him remembering when he wasn't so kind. things that happened in your childhood mm. that, yeah. you know, you, f- you feel resentful about. And not just childhood, but it could be last week. And one learns that it is much easier, in a sense, to let go of it. Because hatred doesn't cease by hatred. There's no method of doing it. You just have to let go. Yeah. It comes back. I'm not, I don't want to make it sound too easy. But you learn more and more to let go. And the more you can do that, the more it, it frees up. And the more, well then, the true imagination, so to speak, can manifest. Sorry, that's a big jump, isn't it? No, I think I'm with you. Let's just see if we can clarify that. So what I'm hearing is you describing that the process of the direct pointing has been a tool which has helped on a kind of nuts and bolts level with some aspects of habits, of samskaric patterns that hold us back from being able to self-liberate. And that if we're able to do that work to see through, let go, some of those habits of selfing, as it's sometimes described, then actually then what comes through is the illumined imagination. Or what that's can what, come well, through. I don't want to say that's all that's come, but that's one mm. thing. You start seeing with the doors of perception cleansed. Right. So what's dirty in the doors of perception is, for example, my resentment. If I feel resentful towards you about something that you said. I'm not really seeing. I'm seeing with my eyes in Blake's sense, my window. I'm seeing with my window, not through it. Yeah. So and practice the self-liberation then you start seeing through the window and then the world becomes much more interesting Mm. so thinking about imagination you were saying that when the doors of perception are cleansed one of the things that happens is that imagination is freed yeah how would you describe in a way that role of imagination in your spiritual life that's a big question i know yeah Well, I've always been interested in that. I've always kept coming back to it. I've always gone to retreats where it's the theme. In the early days, I used to do retreats on the religion of art, you know. So it goes back a long way, and I've always been interested in it, but I've never understood it. I still don't understand it, but I keep at it because it's obviously, it's something that's very, very important, and it's a way through for me so to speak, and a very attractive way through. If we talk about the doors of liberation and the three jewels where Bhante talks about, well, of course, there is the fourth Viparyasa, which is seeing the unbeautiful as beautiful. Mm. So logically speaking, there should be a fourth door of liberation. When he said that, or when I read that, I can't remember, that really struck me. I thought, well, yes, that's a very attractive path. And in a way... You know, one had been on that path through being interested in all this stuff, but just don't know how it works. So it's like you're describing a fascination with imaginations. It's like a fascination with this fourth door that you didn't even know existed in that way until much later. Well, one sensed it, I suppose. Deep down you sense it. So if you deep down sense something, you see there's this retreat on the door of liberation... Wow, that sounds really interesting. So you follow that, you follow that lead. Right. You've got to, it's something deep down in you. I remember Bantis saying, if an image appeals to you, 
you know, follow it, mm. look it up. Because why does it appeal to you? Mm. For some reason it does. And it's unconscious or deeply subconscious. Mm. So you want to get that conscious. You want to nail it, which is a wrong way of doing it, because nailing it, then you become obsessed with it. But Although, to be yeah. devil's advocate, in Padmasambhava terms... Padmasambhava's nails kind of pin things down in order to know them, yeah, don't they? Yeah, yeah, it's not so, It is like, it's, yeah. it's, I mean, obviously, yeah. there can be a grasping aspect that can come in, but at the same yeah. time, not letting those things slip away is very important, yeah. isn't it? And in a way, not being able to let them slip away. They come up again. But it does sound like very much you listening to this inner voice that is saying, oh. Yes, I like that. I like the idea of listening, even in sadhana. I remember thinking, well, you've got to be really receptive to Manjagosha. It's like listening. So is Manjagosha the sadhana that you've always done? No, I was given the uh, Vajrasattva sadhana at ordination. And then a few weeks later, Bhante said, uh, there were only a handful of order members then. So he said, please let me know if there's any other sadhana you're interested in. And I wrote back and said, well, sometimes when I'm doing the Vajrasattva sadhana, I get this silhouette of a figure with a sword. <laughs> <laughs> so shortly after that, he did the historic Manjugosha Stuti sadhana seminar to which I was invited. Oh. And that was, uh, that was a very powerful experience. Because it was there that he said that, I think, well, I remember him saying that Manjagosha is, as it were, this is put it in my own way, the sort of patron bodhisattva of the arts. He led us through the practice several times. Mm. And he did the spiritual death practice, just for interest, on mm. that retreat, was reading six times the uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead verses. <laughs> oh, now, when the bardo of death upon me is dawning, Oh, now, you know, Bhante's lovely voice. Yeah. When the bardo of dream upon me is dawning. He read that six times. And that was our spiritual death practice. And then uh, the Manjagosha Stuti Sada. Three days. Weekend. Long weekend, actually. And that was when the seminar was as well? Yeah. All that happened in three days? Well, what do you mean? All that, I mean... <laughs> You know, you had a 50-minute practice of uh, yeah. recollection of death followed by a 50-minute practice of uh, Manjagosa Stuti Sadhana on the evening of all three days. Mm. And then in the morning we were studying the Stuti. I think I say all that because it does feel like it is, I think you might have even used the word iconic, or it's got a very particular place, I think increasingly, in our collective history, mm. that particular yeah. seminar. Yeah. So it's just interesting thinking that a happening over three days in 1979 is still very strongly resonating with well, us. Well, that's also because it's the only sadhana that Bhante led a seminar on. As far as um, I know, it's the only time he ever took a group of order members through a sadhana practice was the Manjagosha Stuti Sadhana in 1977. And he'd done it previously with a group of order members in 1974. But as, as far as I know, he never did that with any other sadhana practice. Mm. So it's become iconic for that reason. Mm. Paradigmatic, that was the word I yeah. think that I've, I've also heard used about it, that it's got a sort of pattern to it, hasn't it, yeah. that we can use to understand quite a lot of things. 
So I don't think it's necessarily got anything to do with Manjagosha per se, but mm. the fact that, you know, if he'd done, for instance, Vajrasattva, that would have become iconic. It's interesting, though, isn't it, that he did choose, or it happened, that it was Manjagosha, Manjushri, and this association of that figure, as you say, being the, quotes patron bodhisattva of the arts, and the arts being such an important and central emphasis of Bhante's, which is something that Bhante's brought out from the tradition that isn't there so clearly yeah. without him having brought it I out. I never thought of that. Of course, he must have thought, well, I'm going to do it. What shall I do with them? And he decided to do Manjagosha. Why? Yes, I think there's something in what you say. And what would you say has been... How would you describe your relationship with that practice and its effect over the years, if that's possible to do? Well, I suppose I believe in the practice. I think he said sometime, not not relating to this practice, but in order to do the sadhana properly, you have to believe in it. Sagramati asked him at a at a seminar, "Do you have to believe that Manjagosha is out there?" And he said, "Well, yes, you have really, in order for the practice to be effective. But then to balance that out, of course." It has to be dissolved at the end. So its form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. So that came across very strongly in that seminar, without me understanding it at the time. But there's part of the stuti where he talks about the importance of building up the form and really taking it seriously. And in the way I've put it, really believing in it, it's out there, he's there. But at the same time, it's equally important at the end to dissolve it so as you don't get attached. I mean, there's a famous story of the monk who sees this beautiful amber gold orb and he really gets up from his meditation because it starts moving away from him <laughs> and runs out in the garden running after this beautiful, beautiful golden orb. <laughs> so it's a bit like that. It's sort of the pith. The pith of the spiritual life is in that practice and expressed in that sadhana where it says you have to believe in the Maya way that the form is there. There's something there, but it's not permanent. You shouldn't get attached to it. Therefore, at the end, you dissolve it. I said more there than I was thinking, but it relates to the imagination in the sense that you can create a character or I suppose a novelist can create a character or like the palace of art, you know, you can fall in love with your own creations. And this is the work of the imaginal faculty, isn't it? This is the imaginal faculty at work. Yes. Because it's occurred to me that, of course, it's a very simple and obvious point, but what we imagine has a karmic consequence. It has an effect on us. Yes. And so that is interesting when we're exploring this whole area of the relationship between karma-niyama processes and dharma-niyama processes, that the imaginal faculty is the faculty that really works kind of on that edge in a way, in a way like you've been describing. I think, what's that one note in that seminar that really stood out when I was reading my notes this morning Mm. was, imagination is the faculty of self-transcendence, yeah? So... Coming back to self-liberation, you know, you have to let go of, well, I've talked about resentments, but on the positive side, you've got to let go of the beautiful things. The door of liberation through the path of beauty is learning to let go of the beautiful things. 
because then more beautiful, even more beautiful things <laughs> are there. And then it must get more and more difficult to, to drop them. You know what I mean? <laughs> Do you think this is why you found the spiritual life difficult? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we're in that area that is also described as spiritual death. Yeah. And I guess you're talking about imagination as the faculty of self-transcendence in a way, well, imagination being very integral to the process of spiritual death. I'm a bit hazy here. Um, I suppose my experience of imagination as self-transcendence is minimal or... If it's more than minimal, it's not clear to me. I have to bring it down several pegs, if you don't mind. Of course. (laughs) Of course I don't mind. (laughs) Uh, Which is not self-transcendence so much as the stage of integration. So you've got the stage of integration, the stage of positive emotion, Mm. which are absolutely essential Mm. in order to get up to the self-transcendence. So in my recent years, I suppose I've experienced my involvement in the arts as more a process of integration, even psychological, which of course is very, very good because it provides a basis from which to go on. It's going on all the time. It's not a basis that finishes and then you jump to self-transcendence. It's more like they're all in the mix. I'm getting a sense of the spiral as you speak in a way that the way that they, they lead... into one another because I suppose what I was interested in is perhaps we can think of imagination as very much connected with spiritual rebirth with the sense of an illumined image arises or you're practicing your sadhana and independence on the samaya sattva the jnana sattva emerges but that role of yeah the imaginal faculty as supporting the ability to do that letting go you were talking about earlier So it's interesting talking about it in terms of integration. There's something about the gathering up of our energies. I mean, in terms of my own painting, modest attempts at painting, even in a, I go to an art class and there's a model there and I often don't draw the whole figure, I just draw the face. I paint Mm -hmm. the face. Faces are very, for some reason, are really interesting to me. So I do a lot of that and then when I get home, I put them on the mantelpiece and just sit there, sort of, looking at them. (laughs) I'm thinking, where the heck did that come from? I seem to have this ability, other people have remarked on this in the art club, to be able to depict in some way, even though the level of skill is very low, depict the inner life of the person. That's putting a bit too fancy, perhaps. But a lot of people have said that, and I don't know why that is. But it's obviously why I'm interested in drawing faces. And it happened from very early on. I put these very primitive drawings that I'd done and paintings on the wall. And I just sit there thinking, my goodness, where did that come from? (laughs) You know, really. Like some of these female faces, they're really pale. They've literally been living underground for for yonks. (laughs) (laughs) So that was really interesting. And I never got that from writing. That's why I stopped writing. I don't know why. It'd be interesting to go back to writing after doing so much painting. But I got that sort of fulfilment and sense of integration. What I mean is, when I look at the painting, not always, but often, I feel there's something objectified that's been in there 
not conscious and not clear. And that, to me, is a very integrating process. Fascinating. Yeah. So it's not me. You know, the me has been holding this back through projections, through all sorts of things. But when you draw, you see, you, you're trying to see what's there. You know, the chap comes around and says, well, can't you see that eye is closer to the nose than you've got it? You know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's really annoying, because he's right. But you're constantly you're just trying to get, get it right. Mm -hmm. Then put it up on the wall. Although it's not right, there is also this element of, wow, there's something else There's going something on. Else something there. else going yeah, through. Yeah. So uh, I'm bringing it down from self-transcendence to mm. integration. But there may be some aspect of self-transcendence in, in the sense that you've got the self out of the way in order to be able to uh, produce that. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I'm thinking there's an interesting perspective on integration well, I think where you can you can argue that actually you could say integration is the whole of the spiritual life. Mm. In a way, if you were able to integrate all your experience, astounding, unacceptable as it is, <laughs> then actually, ultimately, that would probably be synonymous with enlightenment because mm. you wouldn't be turning away from anything. You wouldn't be endeavouring to control anything. And there'd be a seeing of things as they are, well, in their right relationship, I suppose, as a mandala, actually. Mm. Banti talks in, in Wisdom Beyond Words about Bodhisattva arranging all their experience as a mandala. It's a kind of integration, mm. isn't it? Mm. So what I'm hearing you say when you're talking about that experience of painting and then having that mysterious sense of something's happened that wasn't me as I identify and know myself, yeah. then you're integrating, in a way, a bigger sense of who you are. Yeah, I suppose that's it. Yeah. It's a way, that's way way of yeah. looking at it. Anyway, it? it's a very satisfying experience. And yeah. I, I do feel it's not just fiddling about with paints, which is enjoyable. It's a nice hobby, so to speak, but it's yeah, not yeah. just a hobby for me. That's why I do so much of it. It's something quite important. I think that's been very clear in how you've talked about it before as well. I was saying earlier in that, that great talk you did last year about Orpheus, I had that sense of you communicating your direct experience of, I use the word higher states of consciousness. Yeah. And I yeah. know you felt maybe that was a bit of an elevated way yeah. of describing it. But whatever we're talking about, there's something more than mm. what we're habituated yeah. to, what we can appropriate, what yeah. we can easily explain, I suppose, yeah. the mystery. So I suppose the whole process has really strengthened my faith in Bhante's teaching about the importance of art to the spiritual life or mm. the importance of the imagination to the spiritual life. It makes more sense than it did when I first read it on paper, so to speak. I wanted to ask you about Bhante. I'm always interested in asking people, what do you see when you look at Bhante? Mm. <laughs> people have such different relationships with Bhante. And I'm just wondering what your response to that would be. Well, I'll go back to the beginnings. And in a way, it's not changed. But, uh, he was certainly... Um, there was something... It's very hard to put it so that it doesn't sound, you know, like too elevated. But he was definitely... Well, it was, he was clearly much more developed than I, am, I was. That was absolutely clear. 
and that was his spiritual stature. I was always aware of his spiritual stature, and I felt like a little sort of, uh, you know, dwarf or something <laughs> compared with, you know, there's this sense of something much greater, but what you could move towards. And he always made that clear, not just in what he said, but uh, what he was and when you were interrelating with him. That, you know, this is what it's all about and we can, well, in terms of this conversation, transcend ourselves. Yeah, but uh, he always made one feel one's own size. <laughs> yeah, he just had this amazing ability. Didn't necessarily have to say, say anything even, but one became aware of one's own lesser stature. Hmm. And at the same time, through his retreats, of the possibility to grow. That's what we talk about, spiritual growth. And mm. you know, that's a very palpable sense of being a pygmy compared to this giant. But actually, <laughs> you know, you don't have to remain a pygmy. So it's not a sense of being a miserable sinner and a little, mm, you know, no. in that sense, but a more of a sense of mm. a potential to be so much more. Yeah. So that I'm, what I'm saying, I suppose, is that his presence had that effect. And it still has that effect. Uh, 40 nearly 50 years later, it still has that effect. In spite of other experience, other sides of Bante I experience, you know, that is always there. So a sense of potential? Well, a sense of his own, I say his own spiritual stature, but it's almost as I was trying to say last night, there's something greater in the room, in a way. That's put it very crudely, but... He's sitting there, a frail old man. I went to see him last year and his, his voice has got very weak. And he can't really sustain a conversation for very long. He mm. hasn't got much energy, but there's still that. So I can't sense. articulate it really. Yeah, we're back to the mystery. Yeah, yeah. But something coming through him. Something coming through, yeah. Mm. But be careful not to reify it, as it were. It's, it is connected with him. Not dissociating from him, but uh, yeah. So there's the the whole package, you know. Yes, I was wondering about that because there are the more difficult sides of Bante, which yeah. we're all aware of as well. And I wonder how that's been for you. Well, he said to me not the first time, but in the first few weeks of our acquaintance, he wanted me to treat him like an ordinary human being, and that came across really, really strongly. What was your response to that? Did you feel that was something that it felt easy well, to do? Well, I appreciated it. It's damned mm. hard to do that. Because mm. <laughs> you immediately, if you're a pygmy compared with a giant, you immediately, you know, you project. Mm. And I, I, he must have suffered so much projection. I mean, that's why he went on his first solitary retreat in Cornwall in 1974. He said, I feel I've just become a psychological problem-solving machine. You know, people projecting onto him all the time. You know, it must be so, 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 so difficult. And at last he finds someone who he feels, you know, will treat him as an ordinary human being. And I like to think that I've been able to do that to some extent, because I think it's very important for him to take off the robes and just relax and 
have a cup of tea together, you know. And would you say that that's an important thing for us all to be able to do? Yes, very important. It's very important for order members, and especially people in a teaching, you know, position. And mm. They're up front and, you know, they're chairman or they're metric conveners or they're important in certain ways. And you have to be so careful not to get your ego, so to speak, your selfing, to become tied up in that. I think he was always very aware of that. And always, I think, has escaped it in some way. You never become identified with that in that way. I don't know. Would you say it's possible that he's not always been aware of the extent that people have projected onto him? Yeah, probably. Yeah. I don't think he's aware of the effect he has. Sorry. I think at times he hasn't been aware of that. He's more or less steady. Well, he's really surprised, you know. I think that was why I asked you. I could imagine Banty saying, oh, treat me like an ordinary human being. But then because of the way you started off when you were describing when you first met him and that effect, it's quite a big ask to hold the both, isn't it? And it's making me think of earlier in our conversation when we were talking about sadhana practice of how we need to be able to switch. We need to be able to both use our imagination to create and really believe in what emerges yeah but at the same time to let that dissolve there's something interesting it's in that area what he described as uh, the bearer of the archetype don't confuse the bearer of the archetype with the ordinary human being because then you're in trouble Ah. i can't remember where he said that in a seminar or something but there's a lot in that because the bearer of the archetype is so important for people that just you know can't see anything else. They don't want anything else. I suppose we're in that very, very important territory of literalism and metaphor, aren't we? Mm. In that sense of recognising that somebody can be the bearer of an archetype that are kind of extremely difficult to describe without reifying it, (laughs) something can come through, which we can and do respond to, but we identify it with the person at our peril. Yeah. So I think that's been a problematical area in uh, people's relationship with Bante. And difficult for him as well. Anyway, it's a complex area. So, But for you now, looking at that over the time that you've been practising, it feels clearer than it did? Well, I think it's more like in terms of what I was talking about last night, where you have to balance or mm-hmm. hold the bearer of the archetype with the ordinary human being. Right. That's very important because there's no way you're going to reconcile them. And that's, uh, that's been a problem mm. for a lot of people in the movement. He is an ordinary human being. Please treat me as an ordinary human being. I am an ordinary human being. So if he's an ordinary human being, he's not perfect. He's got flaws like I have, like you have. And uh, people find that hard to accept. Is a guru necessary? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. A lot of people he is, you know, to some yeah. extent for all of us, he is. But it's a wider, more complex picture than that. So I think I have, as I've said, that's one aspect of my uh, involvement in the movement and my relationship to Bante, that I have learnt to hold these two and not drop one or the other, that they're both there. That's the only way I can put it. I hold my hands out like that. They're separate. But I'm holding both. 
It's not like that. It's like that. It's really great to hear your long perspective on these things, Abaya. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. It's, it feels very real. And like you say, it's not been an easy, easy no. path for you. No, it hasn't. So I was talking to Divan the other day and I was saying to him I was going to interview you and I said, have you got any questions you think I should ask a buyer? And Divan said, ask a buyer if he's got any tips for being a Buddhist at 80. Any tips for being a Buddhist? What would you say? In a way, I don't need tips. You know, I'm a Buddhist and I've been practicing as a Buddhist for 50 years, well nigh. And... uh, I just keep going. But in terms of what I said about I've had a difficult beginning and it's got easier, there may be people, there surely will be order members and people in the movement who've had an easy time and then they get to the 70s or 80s, it starts getting difficult. I don't know why that will be, but I'm sure that. Mm -hmm. So for those people, it's even more important to keep going because one doesn't have the same kind of resources. In terms of physical, even. Oh, God. Integration, integrating this unconscious. Yeah. You know, in a way, you're coming to the end, so you want to sit in your chair and, and just enjoy it. But it won't, I'm saying it probably may not well be the same for, I'm lucky in that sense. I don't think it'll be the same for everyone. So, uh, That's why it's important for those to really make a conscious effort to keep going and not give in because uh, the life energies are dwindling. Because one thing I feel so grateful for that, you know, even when my body becomes incapable, I read a a sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya last week where this old guy comes to the Buddha and says, my my body's a mess, it's awful, you know, you know, falling to bits. And the Buddha says, yeah, but your mind... You can still keep up with your mind. Mm. You can still meditate. You can still reflect. And that's, that's a great boon, you know. Old age can't take that away from you in a way. It strips you down, really strips you down, but it can't strip you of that. So that's, that's what I feel about it. Keep going. Yeah. Thank you, Abai. Bye.